Hello and welcome to another episode of the Gentleman's Journal podcast. I'm Joe Bullmore, the editor of Gentleman's Journal, and I've just learned, in fact, that this is our 100th episode of the podcast, something I discovered mere moments ago when I went to type in the title for this episode. So that's mildly exciting. I hope you agree. And perhaps you'll open a bottle of champagne while you listen along to this episode or just some fruit juice, depending on the time of the day. Or maybe you'll send some flowers in, which frankly, no one does enough anymore. But either way, the main thing to say is thank you very much for listening, especially if you've been with us since the early days. And if you're slightly newer to the podcast, then thank you also. But you know, to a lesser extent. Anyway, that's enough waffle because our guest on today's episode is a man who has no time for waffle. John Sopel, of course, is the journalist and broadcaster who was the BBC's North American editor from 2014 to 2021, perhaps the most eventful seven years in modern American history. Last year, however, John announced that he was leaving the BBC after more than three decades to start The News Agents, a new podcast with former BBC colleagues Emily Maitlis and Lewis Goodall, which, I have to say, just kicked off in the number one slot on the podcast charts this week, and it is very, very good, so definitely go and listen to it. But today on the Gentleman's Journal podcast, John discusses his high-profile scuffle with Donald Trump in the White House briefing room, the most devastating moments in his time as a foreign correspondent, and how his nerves almost got the better of him when interviewing Barack Obama. Enjoy! But before we begin, I'd love to tell you very briefly about the Gentleman's Journal shop, our new men's style destination full of the independent brands that we love. You can find it at shop.thegentlemansjournal.com. That's shop.thegentlemansjournal.com. Head over there for special unique releases from a fine curation of brands and plenty of picks and pointers from people in the industry who really ought to know. I'm sure you'll find something you love. You're kind of sprawled on a sofa for those who can't I, I, see, which is everyone else. <laughs> I'm actually in. I'm actually in quite a small apartment at the moment, and I'm on in the bedroom, okay. which is the quietest place, away from the dog, away from noise. Okay. Hopefully. And you've got the microphone of a a roving reporter, a kind of yeah. proper point microphone, if that's the technical term. I suppose that's true to true to you. It's true to me because I've got this very good microphone that has been around the world with me. And it means that I'm able to connect a microphone and headphones through a clever cable that just plugs into the headphone socket on my laptop. So it gives you good sound quality. That's lovely. Someone told me that the the BBC teaches people how to speak into microphones. Yeah, they do and they don't. You still get... You know, people doing that a lot of the time and plosives going wrong and then sibilant S's, um, which is what I seem to remember being taught on my basic training course a million years ago. But I was told you you were meant to speak as if you're speaking to someone in bed next to you. So don't try and project too loudly <laughs> just be very kind of low-key that, that is one calm. of those most that is one of those really stupid <laughs> bits of advice i mean if you were talking to someone if you were doing the news and there'd been a terrible tragedy and you know 400 people had died yeah and you're talking to the person in bed next to you say, Hi, <laughs> i want to tell you 400 people yeah. died today no you wouldn't talk in that tone no. of voice to do that no, that's ridiculous no, that's piece of advice. advice. <laughs> um, well, thank you very much for joining us. Can I start with something fairly big and meaty then, oh, while, on, while, then. while we get into it? There's that famous expression, which I think is meant to be a Chinese curse, but I don't think that's true. May you live in interesting times. You've been all around the world. You've reported for more than 30 years on politics, current affairs and governments. Is this the most interesting times, so to speak, period that you can remember? Joe, honestly, this is the most challenging time. I also think Mm. the most important time. I'm kind of fascinated. You know, when I became a journalist, you know, I really wanted, I think there was a sort of faux glamour about it of, you know, kind of glasses of whiskey, cigarette ashtrays, full, (laughs) um, working late into the night, the clack of a typewriter. And we called ourselves hacks or scribblers. And I actually think that given the threats that I've seen to democracy in the US most recently on January the 6th last year, and some other things that 
cause alarm and that with social media you know a place where so much falsehood can take root so quickly that this is a kind of dangerous time for our democracies mm. not because of an external threat of tanks rolling across the kind of europe and crushing our democracies i think we could do it ourselves and so yeah we do live in interesting times we live mm. in challenging times and i kind of think that i know we're going to talk about the podcast and i don't want to be you know giving a plug for it but that is what we want to do which is we want to be raising these serious issues in a kind of measured calm way but to say there's a lot of falsehood out there and we are going to if someone says a lie we're not going to say on the one hand on the other we're going to say that is a lie right well we may as well get straight into the podcast because it's um the premise of it as far as i understand is as much as the what and the how it's about the why things are going on it it kind of hopes to break down and explain these huge almost incomprehensible things um in fairly human ways is that a fair summation of your goals that's a very good summation of our goals look there is no shortage if you turn on the television or the radio or whatever of news delivered to you in a very cold boring factual way yeah. there is no shortage of people shouting at you with their opinions and it's so woke or it's so this or it's so that and you know i lived in america for seven and a half years i've i've fun enough i've just been on holiday back there for two weeks and re-immersing into that whole culture mm. of everybody shouting at everybody else and total incomprehension of any other viewpoint it was really striking and jarring um and i think that okay right we know that you've got strong opinions we know that there is boring news but what about a bit of analysis on why certain things are happening but doing it in a way that is engaging and maybe yeah maybe we can afford to smile every now and then god knows maybe we can arch an eyebrow and even laugh at some of the yeah. things that happen and that is what we want to do to try and explain some of the forces that are shaping our society today it's called the news agents i think we should say how long does it take to come up with a new title for something <laughs> like that <laughs> it took forever um, i bet we wanted it to be suggest you know it has to say what it does on the tin so mm -hmm. but we didn't want to call it the edge now yeah. <laughs> uh the take you know all these sort of cliched um yeah 360 degrees um it, because <laughs> 365 days because i think that they just sound sort of trite and you know and yeah. so it, we wanted to be something that was sort of almost funny as well so you know we've all got our news for years we got our news from news agents well we are the yeah. new agents and and it was my wife who came up with it actually and i suggested and we'd been bashing around loads of different bloody titles and i sent it to uh, mateless and dino emily mateless who's i'm presenting it with and dino who's the editor and brilliant podcast maker um they all go love it love it and so right and then we sold it to global and they liked it too and so that's where we ended up what were some of the worst names that almost made it Oh, there were some terrible ones where we were, to, and it was, you know, there were the ones that were trying too hard. Um, mm. You know, what the dot, 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 <laughs> which is, which would have been fine on a day when you haven't got much that's happening. But, you know, yeah. if there'd been a terrible tragedy and it's what the, you know, it would just sound, it's that would flippant. sound glib and flippant and we didn't want that um and so that got canned there were all sorts that got canned and there were some that were so obscure kind of obscure literary references and we thought yeah. no, the whole point of this is not to be obscure it's just to be to be really accessible but interesting and so anyway yeah. so that's so that's how we ended up where we ended up you mentioned the the arched eyebrow and the ability to maybe say things in a wry or, or funny way is that something that you were kind of craving before is that do you feel at, the, at this point that you know you, you that's that's important to you and, and basically was it difficult to do that sometimes at the great institution of the bbc um there were times when it was challenging i think that in fairness you know the the last seven years of my career was spent in washington uh covering yeah. the most extraordinary uh and uh, on, on day one of donald trump's presidency i was at this briefing where his spokesman sean spicer comes 
barreling into the briefing room and the briefing was on mm. a Saturday evening. Briefings don't happen on Saturday evenings at the White House. It was called at the last minute. He came in and just said, the crowd for Donald Trump's inauguration was the biggest in history, period. <laughs> and you thought, well, no, it wasn't. And so the yeah. next day, you know, so that was in the evening. London's gone to bed. The next morning I'm doing a piece about this extraordinary claim. Um, and, you know, you want to say, well, Donald Trump says it's this, but photographs suggest it would be that. And you just had to say no. So, uh, and there were various times. Um, I used the F word on the 10 o'clock news uh, with permission um, because it was wow. relevant. Yeah, because it was relevant to the story. Um, it was a quotation or it was just a your quote, own it was, a quote, it was a quotation of Donald Trump uh, okay. when the special investigation was launched and it led to his first impeachment. And apparently Donald yeah. Trump said, well, I'm totally fucked now. Um, and so, <laughs> so we used the quote. And, and so I found that I could arch an eyebrow, but I think that if you're a foreign correspondent, which I spent much of my life being, you get more license than maybe if you're based in the UK reporting on UK yeah. politics. And I think there are times where maybe people do pull their punches or people feel constrained. And I think I, you know, on this podcast, um, we won't feel constrained. And I think we will call it as we see it. And that's not to say, you know, we're suddenly going to come out as revolutionaries. I, I think that, you know, I, I still believe in impartiality, but I think impartiality it's incumbent upon you. I, I think a lot of people mistake, sorry, it's got very boring and a lot of people mistake impartiality for saying on the one hand, on the other. Some people think yeah. Donald Trump won the 2020 election. Some people think he didn't. No, he didn't win. Every single piece of evidence shows that Joe Biden won convincingly. Let's get over it and move on. And impartial, and I think you're misleading the audience and I also think there are some topics that we don't cover as well as we should. So, for example, let me give you an example. Um, the chaos at Dover a few weeks ago at the start of the school holidays. Now, there yeah. was chaos. That's true. There were long tailbacks. That was true. There was the agony of the car drivers. Absolutely true. There was some suggestion that the French hadn't put enough people on to man the, the, the border posts. Now, the fact of the matter is that this has happened because every passport had, had now to be checked as a result of Brexit, um, Britain demanding third nation status so that everyone's passport has to be checked by the country they're going to. Now, obviously, if you previously, you didn't have checks and now you do, that is going to cause yeah. delays. Why did we not mention Brexit in the coverage? And I just think that's doing a huge disservice to the viewer and listener, you don't have mm. to say it's all Brexit's fault, or you don't have to take a pro-Brexit, anti-Brexit, but it is because of Brexit. And yeah. I just think that the, the, I think people think, oh God, let's not mention Brexit. It, it seems to me incredible that the most yeah. consequential decision that Britain has taken over its economic position in the world these last half century is not discussed. Is it working or not? How's it going? Where, where is it working out well? Where is it working out badly? And it just seems to me kind of that the Labour Party don't want to talk about it because they think that they'll be labelled Ramonas. The Conservative mm -hmm. Party don't want to talk about it because they, they're worried that they'll, you know, that people don't think it's working out that well. And you've got a BBC who seems not to be yeah. that interested in whether Brexit is working or not working. I think that's a kind of, you know, that's, again, that's, that's ducking yeah. important issues. I hope, sorry, this is turning into a speech. I apologize. Um <laughs> I, I hope that we I hope that we'll tackle some of these big questions. Yeah. I, I I remember all the conservative leadership candidates were asked that question and every single one of them said it wasn't because of Brexit. Will you will you have people like um Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss on your show? Is that the, the, the kind of the, aim? Yeah. I I we want people who are making key decisions about our futures to come on and hopefully explain why they're doing what they're doing. Now, what I'm not interested in is doing the round of interviews um, that you get each morning where there is one minister mm. put up and they do seven interviews and they say the same tedious thing in each of the interviews with their talking points and they won't go beyond. I want people to engage a bit intellectually. You know, I'm not, we're not out yeah. to get gotcha moments. We just want You're to understand. 
on Good Morning Britain. Well, no, I mean, you know, it's, you know, do you, how much is a price of a big, big Mac? I have no bloody idea how much a Big Mac costs, you know, no, or what, 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 what is a pint of milk or how much, you know, I think those sort of predictable gotcha questions are yeah. why politicians are very wary about being interviewed. I'm, I'm much more interested in gauging about, well, why do you think that was a good idea? Or, you know, what would these immigration measures have done to your family when when they were trying to get into the UK? I'm just kind of interested in a more rounded historical sense, maybe, of some of these big yeah. questions. So, yeah, we do want to get people on. And, you know, so far people have said made positive noises. Uh, whether anyone will actually turn up and appear, um, you know, we'll wait and see. Um, but I think it'll be, I just think it will have a different feel and tone to a lot of the news coverage that you get. And I think there is a gap in the market and I hope we fill it. I'm sure you will. Shall we talk about your time as the BBC's North American editor, which I think started in, in 2014. Yeah. So you had a good run of seven years in there and you covered probably, I mean, it must be a kind of mix of a dream and a nightmare and a fever <laughs> dream those years. But the, the thing I remember, John, was, and it's probably the, the the, the biggest moment, I guess, viral moment you had was when Donald Trump in the press briefing um, kind of has a go at you and calls you a beauty and gets his miniature hands out to point you to sit down. And there's this kind of small, very tense tussle between you guys um, over the BBC's impartiality or whatever he saw as some kind of odd slight. Can you talk us through that that moment and the bizarreness of, of kind of almost squaring off to a president um so so the day had started with this i was watching one of the breakfast shows and it said oh there's going to be a news conference at the white house to introduce donald trump's new labor secretary i thought mm. why is donald trump giving a press conference to introduce the labor secretary which is a kind of quite a lowly position in the cabinet yeah. this doesn't make any sense so i thought it was a, it was a cold morning it was kind of you know and washington does really frigid winters and i and you have to queue up outside between the briefing room so you've got the you've got the west wing of the white house which is where yeah. the oval office is and where the engine room is if you like then between it you've got the briefing room which is where the journalists hang out waiting for the briefing and then you wait outside to go into the east room of the white house which is where the big state rooms are and is where the the residence is but it's also where the main news conferences are held because that is the biggest room uh, in the whole white house complex so I queued outside in the cold because I wanted to get a good position in the news conference because I wanted to yeah. be on the end of a line of row of chairs and have a direct eye line to the president because he I knew he would call the American networks. Anyway, he calls me quite early, but I know he's feisty. He's always argumentative. And I kind of have a sense that this could quite get quite heated quite quickly. And I thought, whatever happens, whatever he says to me, I am going to remain calm and polite, but firm. And I, right. you know, so when he said, where are you from? And I go, uh, BBC News, he goes, another beauty. And, and I, I thought, oh my God, here we go. And I said, well, actually we're free, fair and impartial. And he goes, yeah, like CNN. And and it, it goes on <laughs> like this. And he'd been talking about the smooth running of government, that it was running like a, you know, well-oiled machine. And mm. it, the first few months of, I mean, the whole four years was anything but a smooth running machine. And so I pushed back on it and eventually he goes, stop, stop. I know who you are. And you think, Oh my God, he knows, you know, that, he kind of, and, uh, and it was just very funny. Um, and it was one of those occasions where my phone is now yeah. uh, in the moment I was really calm and I thought I'm going to stand my ground. I'm going to do it at the end of it. When he, you know, my kind of moment in the spotlight had gone and he was, onto somebody else. I think my heart did start beating a little bit yeah. faster. Um, of course it did. And my phone was exploding, you know, with texts, mainly, mainly from my kids. Oh my God, he knows who you are. Do we need to leave the country? <laughs> <laughs> um, and it was kind of what, one of those moments that you think, yeah, well, I'm really rather good. Yeah. And, and I mean, the only trouble it got me was when I said we, the BBC was free, fair, fair and impartial. So thousands of people then started writing me. So, oh, free. So I don't need to pay the licence fee then, do I? Uh -huh. And I said, oh, well, free in the sense of free from government interference. So um, <laughs> it was one of those, and I just thought it was one of those kind of defining moments where 
this tells you something about the presidency. And it also told me what the next four years were going to be like. And they were tumultuous and they were chaotic and they were exhausting and they were exhilarating. Did you meet him outside of the briefing room or was it? Well, I saw him. I saw him. him, I saw him. Yeah, I've seen him in the Oval Office and I saw him, you know, around all sorts of places where. Is he different there? No, I think what the, the Donald Trump you see is the Donald Trump. He can be immensely charming. I mean, you know, that that shouldn't be underplayed, but ultimately it's charm on his own terms if he wants something. And if you've done something that he doesn't like, you know about it in no uncertain terms. Um, Mm. And um, I mean, you know, look, that was the great attraction of Donald Trump to a lot of American people was there was this degree of authenticity. You know, I was saying I don't want to do the interviews on the kind of, you know, with ministers where they come round and repeat talking points. Donald Trump's, you know, Get shoots from the hip. There is no yeah. filter between brain and mouth, it often seen with him. And, you know, a lot of American people really loved that authenticity and they felt they'd got somebody who was a non politician politician. And I think that there, yeah. I think Boris Johnson has a sort of similar appeal in this country that he sim- somehow and he and, and therefore is judged differently. You know, Donald mm. Trump said things that other would have sunk any other person and was responsible for things that would have sunk any other politician. But he seemed to get away with it. And I find that a really interesting challenge. And it goes back to where we started the conversation, that I think it's a really important time to be a journalist, to hold people like this to account and just go, not you, you can't just go, oh, gee, shucks, isn't he fun? Mm-hmm. You have to be able to say, whoa, that's just not true, or that is dangerous. Or, you know, and some of the things that happened were comedic, but they were also very alarming. And I th- and I just don't think you can go along and play these things for laughs, although we will, but you've got to say why it's serious too. Bill Bryson described you during that time. I think you're on the cover of your book, A Year at the Circus. He described you as possibly the, the sanest man in America. Were there times when you were... Uh... Really, you felt like the only insane, sorry, the only sane person in the room. What were the kind of wildest, maddest moments during your tenure there? Um, well, it's very kind of Bill Bryson to have said that. Uh, I think that there was an insanity that took hold in mm. America. And I think this is, again, something that has to be guarded against. I think the media, initially out of anger, some parts of the media, like CNN and MSNBC, um, became very hostile to Donald Trump, and wouldn't you know? They just wouldn't say a good word. They they couldn't they couldn't report him without almost tutting their head and saying, "What a loser! What a liar! What a thief! What a cheat! What a yeah. con man! What a you know!" Just kind of enraged. What an embarrassment for the United States of America. Literally, I mean, I'm not I'm not exaggerating. Literally, presenters morning after morning mm-hmm. are going on TV and saying that. And they were you know I was back in America last week. They were saying that again. It was nothing had changed. And on the other side, you 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 would think that Donald Trump had been the second coming and that, thank God, you know, the second coming has arrived and, you know, we, we are now in a, this higher state of being. And I just thought, they've all gone mad. Stop treating Trump. Donald Trump isn't the enemy of us. He may be the enemy of the Democratic Party, but we're not... We're journalists holding people to account. And so I thought that insanity did take over. I mean, look, the most insane thing was when, so during COVID, during 2020, lockdown has happened. Donald Trump is unable to go to any rallies. Donald Trump is unable to uh, have visiting presidents. All those Mm. things were his opportunities or to go to walk out to the helicopter on the on the south lawn of the White House and stop and speak to the cameras for 15 minutes before he boards Marine One to take him to Andrew's uh, joint base. That all went. So he didn't have a media outlet. So for the first time since he'd been president, he came to the White House briefing room to talk to us. And they got madder and madder and longer and longer. Now there were only 12 people in the room. There was there was the president, and instead of 49 people filling the the seats of the of the of the briefing room the white house correspondents association paired it right back and the bbc or regularly had a seat and i would take that mm. seat whenever there was a briefing and so you're in long conversations with trump 
he stays for two and a half hours because he wants to be on camera and he wants to shoot the breeze. And I was there the evening where he comes and talks about drinking disinfectant bleach because bleach mm. does such a great number. So there'd been this scientist from the department of Homeland security who'd done a presentation saying, look, sunlight and uh, heat affect the life of the coronavirus. And so, but the thing that kills it stone dead is, is bleach because that just eradicates it. And he says, well, maybe there's a way we can get that inside the body because it does such a number on it. And so maybe we, mm -hmm. if we could find a way. And I thought, oh my God, this is just bonkers. And, <laughs> and you know, and someone texted me, Did he, has he really just said that? And I texted back, yeah, he has. And you're thinking, this is an unbelievable story. And this has gone to the realms of lunacy. And mm -hmm. I remember the height of that lunacy came the next morning when I, in my in email inbox, was an email from the head of PR at the biggest manufacturer of bleach in the United States. They make Clorox, like we have, I don't know, Domestos in the UK. They Clorox is the big, yeah. the biggest seller of bleach. And it was a, an email that was being sent out, was sent to me, but was also going out to all press and anywhere they could get it. Do not, whatever you do, ingest bleach. It kills. Just think about this for a second. You had the biggest manufacturer of bleach having to put out a press release saying, whatever you do, don't follow the <laughs> advice of the president of the United States. Now, when that guy got home that evening and was just twiddling around and making his tea and maybe doing some ironing, did he think he would be writing his press release saying, ignore the president of the United States. And, and after that, Donald Trump stopped doing briefings for a long while because they realized that the White House, it was just becoming suicidal. And, you know, Donald Trump lost the 2020 election and he did lose the 2020 election, not because of COVID, but because of the way he handled it. And it was just chaotic. Yeah. And it spoke to all the other facets of, you know, that he was impulsive, that he was impetuous, that he couldn't stick to discipline. And going on the news each evening, you couldn't but arch an eyebrow and say, you never guess what's happened today. And that's what you found <laughs> yourself doing. But I wanted as well to keep a sense of measure and, you know, just not go on each night and say, God, he's such a liar. Or God, can you imagine what he's done today? There were things that he did that were serious and, you know, kind of fascinating and that no other president would have done. Hmm. Tell me if I'm rambling. I, You know, when I went to Singapore. No, not at all. And when I went to Singapore uh, for his meeting, his first meeting with Kim Jong-un, now, no other president would have dared to take that meeting. But when he did, it did reduce the tension a bit because weeks before that, it, we, we were thinking, oh, my God, it's you know, there's a nuclear war coming with North Korea. And Trump took a gamble. Now, as it turned out, it was a lousy gamble. But in that moment, it probably diffused things a bit. So yeah. you couldn't just look at everything he did as ridiculous, although there were invariably ridiculous aspects to it. The other president you served under was very different, obviously, Barack Obama. And you interviewed him in 2015. Away from policy or legacy or anything like that, what, the personal style of the man, his manner, the way he was when you met him, what was he like? Again, you know, you... I, I was at home alone. Well, no, sorry, I was at home with my wife and my wife suddenly sees me jumping around. I'm on the phone and it was the White House ringing to say, okay, you know, we have been lobbying for ages to get an interview. And it yeah. was them saying, yeah, he's going to do it next Wednesday, but you can't say anything because until he walks into the room, the interview is not guaranteed to happen. No. Because if there was a national security emergency, he's required in the situation room, that takes precedence, you lose your slot in the diary. And the diary is carved up into 15 minute slots for the president. And so they had allocated 15 minutes. We said we wanted 22 minutes so that it could fill a back half hour of a program yeah. on BBC World and the news channel. And they said it's 15 minute slots. But if he's enjoying himself, he can. I said, well, how will I know? And they said, you'll know. Everything we'd heard about the president was he runs 10 to 15 minutes late. Okay. We were sort of ready. But we were kind of, we still thought it was, you know, probably 20 minutes away from the interview. And the Secret Service guy just walks into the room and says, one minute. One minute? What do you mean one minute? Well, one minute. 
and the president arrives. And so he walks into the room, uh, sits down, you know, kind of very jokey, very friendly, warm. And he was about to go to Africa. And I had my first question prepared, and we'd sort of agree with the White House. We'd talk a bit about the trip, but then on to any other issues. And I think I asked my first question at about 485 miles an hour. <laughs> and um, and I trip over the first question. And because it's the first question, I said, actually, can I just do that? We'll just start. We'll do that again. He said, yeah, everybody, let's take a breath. And he started, I think I've got something in my eye. So, yeah, let's just all take a pause. And he didn't wow. have anything in his eye. He was just being gracious. And I thought it's the first time in my life that the interviewer found it, sorry, the interviewee found it his job to put the interviewer at ease. Yeah. And so the interview went well, and uh, it was clear that he wanted to engage, and he was very candid about uh, gun law and about how that he felt that was his biggest failure, that he'd failed to move the needle. And that, you know, mm. was a story that kind of went around the world, uh, that, you know, because presidents tend not to admit that they've failed on things. And then it gets to the end of the interview. And obviously we're then up against the deadline because the BBC wants to get it on the air as quickly as possible. And so the agreement was that once the interview was over, boom, we'd rush into edit mode, cut three clips. I'd do a voiceover. They would stitch it together in London. And at the end of the interview, the president goes, John, uh, would you like to come out and see the Rose Garden? <laughs> So there is the little angel on one shoulder and the devil on the other. The angel is, I've got to serve the BBC and get this on air as quickly as possible. The devil thinks, am I going to say no to yeah. going around the Rose Garden with the President of the United States of America? You must be bloody joking. I'm going into the Rose Garden. <laughs> so we all went out into the Rose Garden and it was, you know, we kind of walked around the famous colonnade and whatever and yeah. chatted a bit more, kept on recording. And then he said, you know, and do you think your do you think your crew would like a team photo? Well, Mr. President, funny you should ask that, but I think probably they would. So we posed for a team <laughs> photo. Uh, wow, with with him, uh, and they said you can't you can't put this one on. Uh, you know, please don't put this on social media because this is just a you know personal photo for you guys. And it was great, and so it was a very different experience. I was incredibly nervous uh, beforehand, and and my mother had died a few years earlier. And um, I thought that night I got home and it was slightly overwhelming, you know, this kid mm. from, you know, I, did I ever think that I would be at the white house interviewing the president of the United States? It just seemed, you know, the, the 16 year old John Sopel, unimaginable. And yeah. I sort of thought, God, this is overwhelming. I would so love to tell my mum, you know, she would oh. be in such sort of disbelief. Um, about that. And that's not to do with him being a Democrat or Republican or whatever. It's just to do with the fact that there was me interviewing the president of America. And I just thought, you know, yeah. this, this, what a great time to be doing what I'm doing. You've kind of reported on wars and you've been all over the world. Have you had any moments when it's just become too much, either personally or because of what you're seeing, that you've actually just kind of broken down or, or been so overcome by the, the moment that it's been hard to do your job, really? Only once on air did that happen to me. And that was when I was in um, Norway, in Oslo, after that awful, hideous monster, Anders Bering Breivik, had killed oh, yeah. all those kids on that island of Utøya. And on the Sunday morning, there was a service. And I interviewed um, a young woman who was then, uh, would have been the same age as my daughter. And yeah. she talked about how she pulled someone else's body on top of her who'd been shot so that Breivik wouldn't know that she was still alive. Wow. And I just thought, what a trauma. And I just thought, and that, you know, and you, you think, what if my own child had been there yeah. then? And it seems such an innocent thing that they were all doing yeah. and to be, you know, the, warped mind where this made sense and i just and i think the kind of and the tolling of the church bell and the yeah. intensity of the feeling and the shock that was still there that i think i handed back to the studio and my voice was still quavering um yeah. but there have been other times where you see things 
and afterwards you know you realize they've taken a toll on you but early on in my career i went to cover lockerbie and i persuaded yeah. a helicopter you know an army helicopter pilot to take me up uh over and i never asked what they were being tasked with doing i just thought oh yeah. great i'll get sound of helicopter you know and it will all be me and i can see they were they were picking up bodies and you know and, yeah. and i was able-bodied and they said you need to come and help and i was put on a bungee rope at the back of this helicopter and i thought oh my god i wasn't ready for that and that, wow. that those sort of things have an impact on you uh for a while afterwards and you know then People did not talk about PTSD. It was, I mm. think that people are much better equipped now. But even still, you go to, you know, I went to the cover the tsunami in uh, the Indian Ocean and yeah. saw some pretty terrible things. And it's little things that, that kind of mm. made me. So we filmed at a, what had become, it was a Buddhist temple, but had become a kind of center where the homeless people had gone. People hadn't eaten for days. A truck arrives and it's throwing out bags of rice and biscuits. And and this guy, old guy who remembered when Sri Lanka was Ceylon and kept on talking about Ceylon and the British empire. And he hadn't eaten for days and he gets his pack of biscuits and he, he offers me a biscuit. Oh wow! And I, and I just thought, I'm fine. You know, uh, and we had found we we took out with us all this kit of you know water purification and tents and mres meals ready to eat you know army ration pack foods so dry food so you could you know stay well and have plenty of food uh we ended up as is the way of these things the madness of these things is that you find a five that we found a five-star hotel that was on a bluff yeah where they had generators they still had fully stocked kitchens so we were filming the police beating these people into line with sticks so that they, you know, had to wait patiently to, and they hadn't eaten for days. And we are back in our air conditioned hotel room, editing wow. these pictures while eating a club sandwich and having a diet Coke. And you just yeah. think of the moral uncomfortableness. Is that the right word? Discomfort of that. And that is shocking. And so that has an effect on you as well. So there are times when, you know, you hear people's stories and I, I actually, I actually got back from that trip and I went, uh, I, I just happened to be at television center, which is when there was where the BBC was then based. And, um, there were bosses having a meeting and they called me in and said, Oh, how was the trip? And I started talking about it. And like a child, I realized mm. I was starting to well up. Oh no. And I started thinking, oh my God, I'm gonna I'm gonna start crying. So I said, okay, I've got to go. And then actually there was it was one of the very cool things that uh the woman who controlled uh the news channel, her secretary rang me and said, Oh hi John, duh. um just to say uh we just taking you off the road for the next couple of weeks. See you, see you in a couple of weeks' time. Have a good, you know, wow. bye. And they I think there was a realization that I needed to uh, decompress yeah. and you know and the same when i came out of afghanistan you know which was you know you were moving with the front line and seeing some pretty horrific things i think you do need time to process some of the stuff that you see and that you've reported on it's i suppose yeah there's an it's an odd combination of qualities required to be a foreign correspondent effectively you've got to be very empathetic but also you've got to be able to detach yourself from it and not get too emotionally caught up in it in the moment at least it what why do you think that you were drawn to this line of work away from the the glamour of the the whiskey and the white suits yeah. and things like that what <laughs> what is it about you do you think that made you want to go and do things that are sometimes incredibly difficult golly i i, I honestly i don't know i maybe it's i'm curious i'm interested in people and i think I want to tell stories. I mean, I'm not telling stories like a, you know, let me tell you a fairy tale, everybody. Mm. I think that I've always loved the great raconteurs who are able to hold people's attention, who are able to make something come to life. And maybe I found, you know, thought, well, you're not bad at that. I'd never had ambitions to be a war correspondent. And the first time I kind of went somewhere where it was potentially quite dangerous. I, it was it was a really interesting test of myself because on the one hand I thought, well, turns out I'm a, I'm a bit braver than I thought I am, 
but geez, do I want to make this my life to be going in and out of war zones the whole time? No, thank you. It's bloody terrifying. And, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll go when I have to, but I don't want to be there every day. I think if you're a journalist, but you know, apparently it's true in the army that the most miserable soldier is the one who's left in barracks. If there's yeah. a war going on, because everything you've trained for, you're not doing. And so I think as a journalist, you've got to have a slight thirst for adventure and being where the action is. And I think it just goes by, but you know, equally, I, I just love being in different situations. So, you know, when I was, I, when I was the BBC's Paris correspondent, you know, I got to cover the Cannes film festival and I'm suddenly interviewing Uma Thurman. Now, what do I know about? I mean, you know, and I was a part, I've kind of interviewed presidents and prime ministers and suddenly I'm coming out in a cold sweat because I'm in the same room as Uma Thurman. Um, and, uh, you know, you think, and I'm just kind of, there's a bit that stands outside yourself and says, oh my God, Sobel, what are you bloody doing? Why are you getting into your knickers in a twist because you've got some very glamorous Hollywood actress in front of you? Well, it's because I've got a glamorous Hollywood actress in front of me. And, 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 um, and so, you know, I, I just love the kind of interest and diversity and the range of things that you can get to experience and get to talk about and think about and so that's why i've i've loved absolutely loved my time as a journalist and i'm sure i could have done jobs that would have been better paid or whatever but i have absolutely no regrets about you know the career i chose away from the uma thurmans and um barack obamas of the world on the news agents who do you think you would be nervous to interview if you managed to get were there anyone now who would be intimidating in some way oh, i'm sure all sorts of people i don't i don't know about intimidating i think right. that um there are people who you've got to be really on your guard about when you're interviewing because they're slippery or because they're aggressive or because, you know, I always think that if you kind of start thinking that life is easy and I'm so good at this, I just have to turn up and I'm going to be brilliant. That's when you screw up, you know, don't, don't get arrogant. I mean, I think that the, all the people I admire most have a hint of arrogance, but a lot of insecurity and it's the insecurity that keeps them grounded. And, mm. um, and I think that, you know, fear of failure is a good thing to have. I mean, you know, not that you, not a fear that is not so great that it prevents you from getting out from under the duvet in the morning, yeah. but sufficient that it causes you the humility to think that not everything is always great and things could always be better. So I don't know. I'm intimidated by anybody, but I mean, there are lots of people we'd, I'd, I'd love to kind of get on who, if I thought they would engage, I would love to interview them about some of the things they've said and they've done and they've acted upon in their lives. Who's that then, do you think? I'd love to do a Donald Trump interview, but I don't think he would. I mean, it would be fascinating anyway, but I don't, I'm not sure he would engage, but just about his time and about, you know, the lack of evidence and the assertions that he's made and, you know, whether yeah. he, you know, the parlous position of American democracy. I mean, I do feel, you know, that this great country is in a pretty fragile state where tensions are still high so those sort of people i would love to interview i'd love to interview you know boris johnson about whether he thinks you know i i there was a great line when that boris johnson is now responsible for bringing down three prime ministers you know david cameron <laughs> Theresa may and himself and yeah. whether he, whether he would accept that because i just think that people do have dark nights of the soul and what i want to get to is not the soundbite the kind of you know pressing F6 on their laptop where they upload the question saying the government is doing everything in a brilliant way and we are delivering for the British people. You know, I, yeah, I know you think that, but kind of give me something a bit more that's sort of a bit more engaging and a bit more interesting. And that's why, you know, is your government a success or a failure? Well, they're going to tell you it's a success. But so it's, but it's trying to find the areas where people will explore things in a more honest way. And that's the space we'd kind of like to get to with the podcast. I've got two more questions if you've got time. Yeah. So so one of them follows on from that. It's about you, your time at the BBC. You were there for 30 years. <laughs> and the news that you were leaving and the news that Emily Maitlis was leaving and together in some capacity, it was a bit like... I don't know, David Beckham when he left Manchester United. He I mean, such a fixture <laughs> oh, of that on. thing. Come on. No. Um... <laughs> and he was going to Real Madrid and everyone thought, you know, is this this is a big move. This is a this is something we didn't expect. 
it got wrapped up into all sorts of culture war things and the BBC losing their big talent because they weren't doing the right things and is the license fee worth and are people getting paid too much? It became something much bigger than just people moving on with their careers. Was that a really odd time? Was that a difficult decision to decide, decide to leave the BBC in the first place? Look, of course it was a difficult decision because I'd spent my whole career there and had loved it. And I kind of hope that, you know, I'm sure that the tone of this, the, of talking about, uh, yeah. for, for, for any criticisms I may have of the corporation, uh, I had the most spectacular time there, and you know, been and done and seen amazing things. Um, you know, the BBC wanted me to be the next political editor. And I had some sort of really big doubts about that for reasons that I kind of think I've articulated about, you know, coverage of UK politics. And I kind of thought, I wonder how easy I will find it to do the job in the way I think it needs to be done. And it was also the same job as I'd been doing in North America, in Washington, which is to report for the, you know, the Today programme, the six o'clock news, the 10 o'clock news, the world at one, whatever. And it, so it was doing the same job and you suddenly get offered the opportunity to do something different. And it seemed really exciting. I think, you know, podcasts reach a different audience in a different way. And that seemed to me genuinely exciting. Now, there was a hilarious moment. I was I was visiting my son in Australia Who's, who's he's married in Australian girl and they, they live out there and uh and we I was having a call with global about this whole thing and it was the first serious call there'd been that this idea had come and it, it was a it was a sort of relationship which went from naught to ten very quickly uh, you know it got serious very very quickly and so I'm having a chat with the big boss of global and his question to me was a similar one to the one you've just asked which was are you really serious about leaving the BBC? And I was sitting in the garden so that I didn't disturb their, their baby. And there is suddenly two kookaburras in the tree. And the kookaburra has got this sort of screeching laugh. And then there was a sudden, he says, are you serious about leaving the BBC? And there was a <laughs> noise from the tree. <laughs> These kookaburras thinking there's no way Sopal's leaving the BBC. He's been there his whole wow. life. And I thought, actually, I am serious and I am prepared to do this. But yeah, it did seem a big jump, but it was exciting. And I thought, you know what? I've given the BBC and the BBC's given me. And also, I think a lot of people stay somewhere too long and they're mm. on a downward curve when they make the jump. And it's sort of, you know, and I just thought Emily and me are doing this at a time of our choosing when there were immense opportunities still there, but we wanted to do something new and we wanted yeah. to reach different audiences with a different type of product. And that is why we're kind of, I think, so excited about doing this. You spoke about fear of failure earlier being quite a, a useful and important thing. Is there a, a fear of failure here in some way? Because <gasps> there's been all these kind of challenger media brands in the last couple of years with GB News, which Andrew Neil had to kind of jettison when it started to look really creaky. And even Piers Morgan's, I think Piers Morgan's talk show, whatever it's called, I can't remember, his Sky Channel. He had zero viewers apparently at one point, which is rare. I mean, these things, they, they must kind of play with your mind a bit. Have you had access to my anxiety dreams? <laughs> Joe, I think you've been inside my head. Of course. But I think the fear of failure is a good thing. I think that yeah. Emily and me are kind of, hopefully reasonably talented journalists. Lewis yeah. Goodall, who's joining us, brilliant young journalist. There are three of us there who are going to hopefully find a way of reaching people or talking about things that are an interesting way. Um, we've had a bit of success with Americast. We've got to turn this into a daily podcast. We're going to mm -hmm. make mistakes. There's stuff we're going to try that will be, we will then think, oh, that wasn't so good. Uh, we're not going to do that again. But I think that there is the gap, and we found that with Americas, of people wanting to have good analysis, but done in a way that is engaging and fun and quizzical mm. and, you know, kind of, as I say, arches an eyebrow. And so I hope that that is the sweet spot that we hit where people will connect and think, actually, you know what? I kind of really would need my daily fix of, I, I want to hear what Sopel and Maitlis have got to say about it. Yeah. And we'll listen in. Not every day. People have got busy lives. We're competing 
I know for a lot of attention. But as I say, and I'll go back to something I said at the start, there is plenty of news that is boring and serious and plodding. And there's a lot of people that will shout at you with viewpoint and woke this and woke that. And maybe there is maybe what people are crying out for is something that we are hopefully going to try and offer. Could we fail? Absolutely. Is it worth trying to make this a success? You bet. Quite right. Finally, something that's just occurred to me is that another titan of the BBC has also announced his retirement this week. Jeremy Paxman is leaving University Challenge, which I've absolutely adored both him and and the show for for ages. His style of reporting, and I'm not sure if it's fair on Jeremy Paxman, has always been seen as, why is this lying bastard lying to me? What is in a line, the John Sopel style? If you've ever had to think of it, what sums up your kind of, I don't know, your way of working? Oh God, that's for other people to judge. <laughs> I, 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 I think, I think there's a. I mean, I, so it's a really interesting question because I think that you know Jeremy was absolutely authentic, and the trouble yeah. is that people then came along and thought, well, if I if I'm going to succeed, I need to be my own version of Jeremy Paxman. I need to yeah. kind of do what Jeremy Paxman does, or John Humphreys does, or going back even further, Robin Day did. You know, and I think the fact of the matter is that the the best advice I can give anyone is be yourself, be authentic to who you are. And I think, uh, I don't know what my style is. I think it's, I, I, I like people, but you know, I, I, I think you can ask a deadly question with a smile on your face. That's brilliant. John, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed this. And I'm going to tune in. You've got a guaranteed avid listener. Fantastic. Here. Well, there's your, one. Your there's go. one. We're, we're on our way. <laughs> yeah, it's a great pleasure. Okay. Good luck. And uh, hopefully speak to you soon. Okay. Thanks so much. Well, if you enjoyed that episode of the Gentleman's Journal podcast, you'll almost certainly love the Gentleman's Journal magazine, the world's finest dispatch from the front line of luxury, entrepreneurship and style. In fact, lucky podcast listeners like you now get 20% off our annual subscription. Just enter the code POD20 at thegentlemansjournal.com to find out more.